Well, what I want to do this morning, usually we start with uh, the, one of the, the quotes I give you. I want to actually end this morning with a quote. So just put that aside, your quote from Piper there. And uh, we will, this morning, be in Acts chapter 6, um, spending our time really kind of introducing a discipline that we haven't been in yet, um, discipline four on the qualifications. We've talked about discipline four a lot um, in terms of how it flows and the connectedness to the other disciplines, but we haven't talked, we haven't really unpacked it yet. So what I want to do briefly, just by way of introduction, is just remind us again of what I hope is becoming second nature to you, um, and that is just what are the what's build all about, what are the, the spiritual leadership disciplines that the elders here want to call the men of Grace Bible Church out to and unite around. Uh, so let's just remember, the first discipline, first and foremost, that's most important is that you would become a man who you've learned how to shepherd your heart. And remember, that this is all in the back of your notebook. If you need to turn it over, you can look at it. Um, the six disciplines there. Um, you have to be a man who's disciplined with your heart. That means you're, you're bringing your heart before God's word on a daily basis so that your heart doesn't just get theological truth, theological fact, biblical truth, biblical fact. You're doing it. You're bringing your heart to the word of God first and most to meet with the God of the word. Scripture, first and foremost, is revelation. It reveals a person. It reveals the Godhead, three in one. And to come to the Word of God and walk away without Him is a big problem. And people do it all the time. We can do it any time of the day we want with the way our flesh is. We're weak. You have to be disciplined about it. You have to be intentional about it. And so the point is, come to the Word of God to meet with God, to find out more about Him, to know Him better, to love Him more deeply to be more faithful in your obedience to him. Um, don't let yourself fall into a trap of coming to God's word to check off a box to do what you're supposed to do so you can go to your small group and say, I, I, was, I was held accountable and I did it. Come to the word of God to, to meet him. You would never read a love letter from that special person in your life that way. Looking at verb tenses. Okay, Unique words that are used only in this letter but not in any of the other letters, you would grab a hold of that letter and you would, if you could not see her, could not be with her, and that was the best you had, you would cling to those words because it was your best chance of being near her. How much more so with God? We can't be with him in the way that we ultimately will be with him, but he has written to us the most amazing and intense and deep and thorough love letter called the Bible. And we come to it to meet with him, um, that he might reveal more of himself to us. And uh, we need to do that every single time. If you get that, if you become that kind of a man, that this is your goal in life, is to meet with God in his word, everything else will flow from there that needs to flow from there. You will be able to step into the lives of others with an overflow of God himself in your life. Jesus Christ, the gospel. And uh, if you don't get this, you won't have much to offer in the kingdom of God and what God's doing. 
the second discipline is the home. Um, God has assigned you to a place where you live. He did it in his perfect sovereignty. He, he has you living with the people that you are living with, not by accident. You spend probably most of your time there. And those are the relationships that you see probably at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And perhaps throughout the week, different other times. You need to be faithful first and most to let what God has put into your heart that you've gathered from his word, you need to let that spill out on those people first. Um, we talk about not playing leapfrog, right? You don't want to play leapfrog over your heart when you read. You don't then want to, once you have read, play leapfrog over your, your household. If you're married and you've got kids, you don't play leapfrog over your wife. You don't play leapfrog over your over your children. You shepherd them. You let spill out of, of your mouth what's in your heart that you've received from God's word. If you live with roommates, you practice now on your roommates. You spill it out. Um, whatever God has put on your heart as you've been reading from his word in the gospel. When you have done that, you will become a man that is a choice instrument in the hands of God. And you will be ready to step into the lives of others outside of you, outside of your family. Um, and again, this is not sequential, like you only do discipline one, and when you get your graduation certificate, then you move on to discipline two, never to see discipline one again. And then when you figure out how to shepherd your home, you get your graduation certificate, and then you move on to people outside of your home, never to go back. Now, these all take place at the same time. They overlap. But there is a, a priority in these things. Um, and when you step into the lives of people, then now you're ready to step into their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And you begin to care for people. And so we're trying to put the emphasis on shepherd your heart, shepherd your home, and then shepherd people in the church and outside the church with the gospel. Now, what that you discover, if you emphasize those things in your life, you become disciplined with those spiritual disciplines in your life, you will then come to a couple of lists about leadership offices in the church, deacon and elder, and you will find that those lists, every single one of those qualities that God says you, the church must look for in a man, you will find them having fallen into one of those first three categories. What kind of a man of God is he just before God? What, what's his heart like before God? What's his home life like? Is he a one-woman man? Is his household under control? Is he managing his household well? Uh, and then just what's he like with people? Is he, is he quarrelsome? Is he contentious? Is he a fighter with people? Um, Etc. So we're now this morning stepping into the qualifications, and especially we want to emphasize deacon qualifications. But before we get to deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, we want you to see... Um, a crucial passage in Acts, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, that reveal, I think, the beginning stages of where the whole deacon layer of leadership came from. So let's turn to Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. We'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll uh, jump right into it. So Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. I tell you, there is so much here more than... In, in a sense, I hope we get set up by God. And I, and I love it when we come to a passage that we go, oh, I know that passage. 
I remember that. Yeah. Familiar passage? Those are the best kind to get surprised on. So I pray that we get surprised this morning. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, what kind of days were they? Were they the days when the disciples were increasing in number? Oh, that's a good thing, right? Disciples increasing in number. What happens on that kind of a day? Well, a complaint comes. Does that surprise you? A complaint by the Hellenists. Those are the Greek-speaking Jews. They had a complaint, and it arose against the Hebrews. Because their widows, the Greek-speaking Jews, their widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So I want you to think about this. Greek-speaking Jews, Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, the ones who stayed true to more of the Aramaic side, Hebrew side, you've got ethnic conflict in the church, potentially racial. In the days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, things were going great. Thousands are coming to Christ in Jerusalem, and this happened. That is a pregnant verse. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, to make sure that the widows have food setting before them at the table each day. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So you can see the, the group they even picked by their names, and especially with Nicolaus at the end, they picked a, a diverse group. <coughs> who would, it would represent, well, that these are Hebrew and these are more Greek kind of guys who have been converts who have come. And they set these men before the apostles, verse 6, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So the apostles are saying, we want to be close to these men in front of all of you. We put our hands on them like we did with Josh not too long ago, Josh Kelso. We are commissioning them to go do what they're going to go do. They are accountable to us. We have relationship with them. There's a closeness. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. How did the verse start? Now, Or how did the chapter start? In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, how does it now end? It continued to increase in number. What happened in between? Is conflict. Complaints. Legitimate complaint. Legitimate complaint. The disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, verse 7, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even a new arena of gospel ministry is opening up in Jerusalem. It's now going to the priests. Amazing. So with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll uh, unpack this a little bit more, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your word. It is awesome, and it is great. And we want to remind ourselves this morning that as we look at it, it reveals you. 
and we want to see more of you. We want to see more of your son. We want to see your precious gospel in particular this morning. So please open our eyes to see exactly that, to see you, to see your gospel. Let us um, learn what we can um, from what this passage describes. Help us to draw um, right convictions from this passage. Give us wisdom as we um, see your gospel go forward from this church. Help us to understand complaints and controversy in the midst of blessing. Give us wisdom. Um, most of all, make us gospel-centered men because your mission is gospel-centered. The church must be gospel-centered. There's nothing else that we are primarily called to do more than anything than to preach the gospel in these days. And so we want to do that well. We want to do that effectively. We want to be effective as a church. So please, raise up all of these men to help in that um, great mission of the gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, what I want to focus on is um, six convictions about deacon leadership as the local church fulfills its gospel mission. Now, before we, <clears throat> before we start, before we even do number one, I want to I wanna be fair uh, in regards to the passage. Um, and the apostles here are not called elders. And the servants here are not called deacons. But I think, and many theologians think, that these are prototype elders and prototype deacons. The, the apostles in the church in Jerusalem are functioning essentially as elders. Um, this is very early on in the, in the, uh, after Pe Pentecost. And by the time you get to the end of Paul's life and his writings, you see not an emphasis on raising up more apostles, but on appointing elders. And those elders appear to be doing the same types of things that the apostles were doing in the church, the first church in Jerusalem. And then you also see Paul, by the end of his life, led by the Spirit as he's writing, to emphasize another layer of leadership, a servant leadership called deacons, and they appear to be doing what these seven men were doing. And so uh, I want to be humble about this and not say absolutely, positively, these are elders and these are deacons, but I think they're prototype. I think it's close. I think it's fair. I think it's... Uh, there's, there's no danger in seeing it that way. So, let's start with number one. Elders committed to the gospel mission of the church highly value deacon leadership. Um, as elders are committed to the gospel mission, they're going to value a, a servant layer of leadership underneath them. And I, I want to start first by kind of unpacking the first part of that conviction statement. Elders committed to the gospel mission of the church. Elders must be committed to the gospel mission of the church because all Christians are committed to the gospel mission of the church, theoretically, okay, in principle by, from Scripture. There is not one who gets converted by the Spirit. There is not one who is birthed through the Word of God who is not committed to the gospel. The Spirit of God does not know how to make a Christian who is not committed to the gospel. The Word of God does not know how to shape a believer into somebody who is not committed to the gospel. Now, we do it all the time, perhaps, as 
weak human beings, but elders need to be committed to the gospel mission because Christians are committed to the gospel missions, mission. All of us are to be committed to the gospel mission. And in particular, I want you to see, as we back up in Acts, how the apostles were committed to the gospel mission and how they were actually leading the church forward in the mission of the gospel. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As you're turning there, have Acts 1, 8 ready, but then kind of flip back to chapter 6. I want to show you a couple things before we look at 1, 8. See, Peter says in, in Acts 6, 2, it, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word. Okay? And he says in verse 4, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, what does he mean when he says that? Um, we have to be careful to not import our view of what elders do today and impose it back on the pages of scripture here and think, well, maybe Peter was overseeing the word of God in Sunday school going on in the church, maybe. And you know what? Elders need to do that. But I want you to see, I want the pages of Acts to inform you as to what these apostles, these prototype elders were doing. Let's go back to Acts 1, verse 8. Remember this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Period. Just stop right there. This is spoken to the eleven. Judas is no longer with them. They have not picked Matthias yet. Um, so, the word that comes to them from Jesus is that power is going to come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, and then he gives them regions. First place they're going to be powerful witnesses is in Jerusalem. Um, they need to be faithful to this call of Jesus Christ, and you're going to see that they actually were very faithful. They were not disobedient. They were faithful to this call in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Okay. Now watch this. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Turn there with me. You know what happens. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost comes. The Spirit of God comes upon the those disciples gathered in that, that upper room. And a whole crowd gathers around. And Peter begins to um, preach the gospel. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who received his word, he was preaching this word, they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amazing. Verse 47. And their fellowship and the result of the way that they just lived together in community in, in, in Jerusalem around the apostles' teaching, they were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, verse 42, right? Now, go to Acts chapter 3. Verse 11, Peter and John walk into the temple. There's a, a, a beggar there who's, who's not well, and he's crippled in some way. Peter and John heal him in verse 11. While that man clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded, and they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So there's this huge crowd that's now gathering. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He began to speak to them. And he gives a message of sorts of the gospel to them. Go to chapter 4. What happened? 
Well, as they were speaking to the people, so again, they're proclaiming the gospel, the word of God to people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they're emphasizing the gospel. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, and it was already evening. But many for those, many of those who had heard the word <coughs> believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So look at the emphasis on speaking here. Verse 1, speaking. Verse 2, teaching and proclaiming. Verse 4, they heard the word. So these apostles are out and about sharing and speaking and proclaiming all the time. Drop down to verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter, Peter's defense before the religious leadership. Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men from Galilee, they were astonished. And then they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Look at verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further, we don't want any more of this teaching going anywhere, they say. So that it won't spread any further among the people, let us warn them uh, to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, or rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they threatened them further, and then they let them go. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and they said, they started to pray, right? Look at verse 29. And what did they pray? Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they are committed to the gospel. They're committed. Verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak of God with boldness. They continued to speak of God. It kept going on. Now, you know what happens in chapter 5. You have the first, um, uh, boy, this would have been an interesting day. Ananias and Sapphira um, are deceptive. Uh, they didn't have to. There wasn't a prescription given by the elders that you must sell your property and you must come and bring it. It was just something that people of their own will were doing. They were moved to do so. Ananias and Sapphira come and they decide to, with pretense, uh, give the impression that they sold their land and they're giving all of the money to the church when actually what they were doing is they were holding a good portion of it back for themselves. But they just wanted to be lumped in. You know what happens. They both die. Uh, on the spot, and right after this, in chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. More than ever before. Wait a minute. 3,000 before? 5,000 men, uh, not counting the women, but now even more number than ever? Verse 17. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles, they put them in the public prison. 
But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stay in the temple and speak to all the people, all the words, to the people, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. So religious leadership, lock them up so they'll stop talking. Angel comes, opens the door, and says, Speak. I know what they told you, but we're on a different plan. You're just going to keep speaking. Drop down to verse 27. They get brought again. They're standing in the temple, verse 25, and they're teaching the people, verse 27, when they brought them back and set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. You hear, um, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Oh, wouldn't that be a glorious thing if Christ's blood was brought on them to cleanse them, to save them? But Peter and the apostles answered, we have to obey God rather than men. And he goes on. Drop down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. And so now Peter says in verse 2, this isn't right that we give up preaching the word. What does that mean in its context? We're not stopping taking this gospel into the city called Jerusalem. We are focused on leading the gospel mission into the city. And we're not stopping. We just got beaten for it. But we are going to continue to go. It's not right for us to stop this. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the word. And when he says that, he means the word as it is going out from this church into Jerusalem in all directions. We're not stopping that. That's when the complaint arose. The complaint arose and Peter saw it as a threat to what his calling was as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he said, this can't stop. We need some help. Church, identify seven men of a certain reputation and character, fullness of faith and fullness of the Holy Spirit, and raise those men up. See, Peter valued a specific, qualified group of servants to assist them and the church in its gospel mission. So, prototype deacons in verses 2 and 3 were raised up to help prototype elders in the church to remain focused on that weighty and yet costly gospel mission, but boy was it a fruitful gospel mission. So, this church, Grace Bible Church, we want to be committed to the gospel mission. Nothing has changed. We need to be as focused. And the elders are constantly challenged because I think all of us would say we are not men who are first and most evangelists by nature or gifting. 
but we have been very challenged by this to want to, over the last few years, align our lives more with this. And I, I can tell you that in the times when I have felt that I have been more restricted and not able to go out as much outside the walls of this church, I have found God to be faithful to bring people into my office, to bring people into church to me. Um, God's not restricted by your schedule. Um, you need our schedules need to be on the line for God and, and, and surrender to Him so He we are not walking directly and, and deliberately out of the, the mission of the gospel. But God will give to you whom He wants to bring to you. And, and this is a constant challenge to us. And what is on our hearts as elders is that the gospel from this church would go forward into this community, not just Tempe, but into broader community in this valley and into the world and this mission is much bigger than us and we need a servant layer of leadership supporting us to take care of legitimate ministry needs within the body and um, we value a deacon leadership and we needed it a long time ago and we were slow in doing it and but Lord willing we are doing it now and want to keep doing it. So elders commit to the gospel mission of the church, highly value deacon leadership. Number two, deacons are men marked by the fullness of the spirit. This is not a task that any man uh, can do or should do uh, in his own strength. Can I remind you of Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Um, they're interested in the kingdom of God. Is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, um, it's not for you to be concerned about times for that. What's important is that if my mission is going to advance, you need a power that you don't have in yourself. There's a power that must come to you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's coming. Wait here until you get him. So, this was to be a group of people who were marked by the Holy Spirit and marked by his power. And Peter and the apostles actually believed this, and they actually needed the Spirit of God. Watch this. Let's walk through and trace through a few things. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Remember this? Peter and John are before the council. Chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, so here's Peter and John in the midst of all these big educated wigs, they say, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? Because it's obvious there's a power among you guys. And Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So it was clear. It was clear what was going on. It's clear what they needed. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Go to chapter 5, verse 3. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, Peter is Holy Spirit concerned. He's centered in on the, the, the need and the primacy of the Holy Spirit in their midst. And he's calling a man out for lying to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Or end of verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. By the way, this is a great passage to demonstrate the deity of, of the Holy Spirit. What does he say in verse 3? 
You lied to the Holy Spirit. What does he say in verse 4? You have not lied to men, you've lied to Look at um, verse 9. But Peter said to her, same thing, you're putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. And then verse 17. Look at the contrast. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled too with jealousy. Completely different kind of man. Completely different kind of man. Verse 32 of chapter 5. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So, Peter and the apostles actually believed that they needed to be filled with the Spirit of God, that they needed to be um, full of His power. So, when Acts 6 comes with its challenge and its obstacle that it throws up in front of them, of course they had nothing less than the role of the Holy Spirit and the need for the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. Pick out seven men among you uh, of good reputation, full of the Spirit. Of course. Nobody's going to accomplish anything in this gospel mission if they're not full of the Spirit of God. Stephen, indeed, was a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, verse 5. Watch this. Look at verse 8. Stephen was full of grace and power. That power would say contextually was the power of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, look at verse 10. He gets, he begins to uh, get into a debate, a dispute, and they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. <coughs> they couldn't trump in his argumentation. Verse, Go to chapter 7, verse 51. He gives this long message to them. I don't know why they waited this long or let him speak as long as he did. But he's establishing something, and this is his point right in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You see, he was a Holy Spirit-centered man, and he could see it when the Holy Spirit was being resisted, and he called them out on it. In verse 51 there. Look at verse 55. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, saw something he never saw. He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. They buried him under a pile of rocks and he died very similarly like Jesus, asking for their forgiveness. So Stephen was a man who was full of the Spirit of God to the day he died. Philip was the same way. Philip was one of the seven. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. You know what happened after, as soon as Stephen was um, killed, a young man named Saul is standing there holding coats so that nobody is restricted by their cloak. You don't have to roll their sleeves up. Just let me hold that for you so you can throw it a little harder so you can get both hands on that rock. And he's standing there, and he begins to bring about a persecution on the church that they had never known. Philip gets scattered to Samaria. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. An angel of the Lord actually back in verse 26 said, you need to go down to this desert road to Gaza. And the Spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot. Run up to that chariot. So here's Philip relying on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. And when the whole thing was done, they get out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord somehow carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. That is some Holy Spirit ministry going on there. Um, 
So my question to myself and for us to consider is how aware of the Holy Spirit are we for doing what we do? I find myself not thinking enough about the role of the Holy Spirit in the gospel mission. I think I do gospel mission quite a bit in my own strength, my own wisdom. And I think, unfortunately, I'm, I'm pretty confident in my own flesh and my own wisdom, my own strength. How prominent does the Holy Spirit need to be in our church for the gospel mission to succeed? How prominent was he in the early church? How often, guys, do your thoughts drift toward him? He's not a force. He's not an impersonal force. He's a person. Do you find yourself just assuming his presence while I was sealed? And that's true. We all are sealed in the Spirit. The inheritance is ours. But do you just assume his presence? And what do you do with a command like in Ephesians 5.18 that says, Be filled with the Spirit. That's not a command to be sealed in the Spirit. That's something that God does to you. But there's a command given to you after the sealing that says, Be filled with Him. So evidently, we can obey that like we can the other commands in grace and in Christ. We are to be men, all of us, the whole community, the whole church, we are to be people filled with the Spirit. It makes an impact on your submission to one another, the way the wife submits to her husband. That's the main command that flows and leads that whole section, Ephesians 5. It's to make a difference in everything we do. You just assume his presence and that his power is automatically there. It doesn't require any intentional thought or any intentional pursuit. When was the last time you purposefully asked for this more of the Spirit? And let's stay true to this context for the sake of the gospel mission so that you might be a powerful witness. Deacons are men who are marked by the fullness of the Spirit. Now there are several other qualifications or qualities described there as well. I just isolated this one because I think it was so striking in the early church. Um, but deacons are men marked by the fullness of the Spirit. Number three, Deacons, like all disciples, are committed to the gospel mission of the church. I think we just saw that too. Again, there's not a Christian who is not committed to the gospel mission of the church. That's the way that it's supposed to be. The Spirit of God makes no other type of disciple when he applies the atoning work of the cross, when he regenerates a sinner, when he recreates a believer. The Spirit of God can only make a disciple who's committed to the gospel mission of the church. The word of God also can accomplish no less than making you into a gospel mission-minded Christian. And we've tried to get a vision and a purpose <coughs> statement for our church that reflects this, that we focus on the glory of God as it is focused on the cross of Christ, which transforms lives, and we don't stop there. 
because scripture doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel says God is drawing in, he's building up, and he's sending out. And so we want to keep that in front of us. That's why we wanted to hang it in front of the doors every Sunday so that when you walk in, you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm called to something greater than me. This isn't about my own personal fulfillment, about me, just my own holiness of life. This is about God doing something great for his glory through the cross as he transforms lives and he draws them in, builds them up, and sends them out. That's me. I'm a part of that. The Spirit of God makes Christians into that. The Word of God makes Christians into that. I want to remind you of a couple things in regards to the Word of God. Think about this. The Word of God witnesses to Jesus Christ. It, it all, it's a witnesser. It witnesses of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God witnesses of Jesus Christ. Put the Word of God a witness and the Spirit of God a witness inside a Christian. And what is a Christian going to become? How can you not be a witness? Okay? Now, let me remind you of this. Chapter, John chapter 5, verse 39. Go back. Jesus made this point at one point in, in, his, in his ministry. He, he had a, a laundry list of witnesses to him. Let me, he just said, let me tell you of those who testify of me. My works testify of me. John bore witness to the truth. Down to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, bore witness to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You open the word of God, and when it's being used by the Spirit of God, the word of God testifies of Jesus Christ. Right? Luke 24. Go back to Luke 24. Jesus' final words with his disciples. We'll be here in a couple of months. Lord willing. What does he say? Why'd you laugh, Tom? Did you know? It's been a long time. Can I tell you something very embarrassing? I'm just, I'm just laying it out honestly before you. I went back to my original notes like when we started Luke. And it was in the fall, I think, of, or late summer. Actually, it was summer because I remember thinking it's, we're, we're doing the Christmas passage in July or August. And it didn't match up season-wise. But, and in my notes, I said, when we finished Luke in two years, I just thought, man, that's so good. <laughs> and that was 03? No, when did I come? I came in 03. So it was 04. A few years off. All right, verse, chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, what? The things concerning himself. It, that's, you open the word of God, and what, what do you lay out? What it says about Jesus. That's what he said. Verse 32. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures? Because they weren't getting him but he helped them get him from Scripture. Verse 44, when he's gathered with all the disciples, because originally he was walking with the two disciples on the road, now he's with all of them in the upper room, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He just summed up all of the Old Testament. He says, it's about me. The word of God testifies of me. It has to be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures 
And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer, on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are what? Witnesses. The word of God is a witness of me. You are going to be a witness of me. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the word of God is a witness. Now I want you to go to John chapter 16. I want you to see if this Holy Spirit is a witness of Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit of God witnesses of Christ. So again, put the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the Christian, and the Christian becomes a witness. You can't, this is your primary identity. You are a witness of Jesus Christ. You are a witness of Jesus Christ who happens to be married perhaps, and so you need to fulfill your role as a married Christian man. But you are a witness who is doing that. You're a businessman. You've got a job. You're doing your thing. And you happen to be a Christian, but you are a, a witness who's a businessman. You may be a student. You are a witness who's a student. You are. This is your identity. This is who you are. You can't deny and work against what God has made you to be. Go to Acts chapter 5. Let's, let's go back to our section. I want you to see Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Watch what he says. Uh, back to verse 29. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. He understood, this is my identity. This is who we are. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they loved them deeply and invited them over for dinner. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. Wow. We just, we are so, we are so sheltered and we are so, and that, you know what, God has made the land the way that it is. We have comfort around us, but you need to count the cost of what it means to be a witness of Jesus Christ. I need to count the cost. So Stephen had become a witness of Jesus Christ in the gospel mission because he was full of the Spirit. So in chapter 6, verse 8, it says that. He was full of grace and power. Verse 10, Stephen, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking and testifying. And all of chapter 7, you have his testimony. His witnessing to them. Philip had become a witness. I want you to watch this. This is so cool on Philip. Um, he had become a witness of Jesus Christ in the gospel mission. Go to chapter 8, verse 4. You remember? Stephen dies. Saul approved of the execution. On that day there arose a great persecution against the church. They were all scattered. Now listen. 
Time out for a second. There is, there's, there are some who say, well, you see, the the, the, the apostles, they just, they just weren't getting the, the Great Commission. That you see, they were, they were sedentary. They were stuck in Jerusalem, and they were supposed to. You know, you know the command and, and and the call in Acts chapter one verse eight was to go to Judea and Samaria and to the remote ends of the earth, and these guys just didn't get it. And it took persecution to get them out of Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute. Um, with what we have seen and walked through, I don't think anybody should be throwing stones at Peter, because Peter was being obedient to Acts one eight. And he was laying his life on the line. And yes, God sovereignly chose that it would not be a session of the apostles gathered together saying, you know what, I think it's time for us to move to Judea and Samaria. He sovereignly chose, independent of anybody else, that the way I'm going to get them outside of Jerusalem is persecution. Yeah, that's true. But it wasn't because they were idiots and weren't getting it. They were getting it, and they were laying their life on the line day after day after day in the city. People wanted to kill them left and right. We come, we should come to these apostles' defense when you hear somebody say that. Acts chapter eight, verse four. Then, and those were scattered. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip is now the lead in the story. He went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them Christ. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by him. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who. Had them, and many were paralyzed or lame, uh, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Drop down to verse 12. But when they had believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he got up and went. This is what he does. Verse 29, the Spirit said, Go over to the chariot, get in it with him. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch had opened up, he told him the good news about Jesus. He testified, he witnessed again. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, you won't hear of Philip again until Acts chapter 21. Paul, go there with me. Acts chapter 21, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to get in big trouble once he gets there. He's going to find this out at, um, finds this out at, at Philip's house. They stop in Caesarea, chapter 21, verse 8. Watch this. I love this. On the next day we departed, Luke says, and we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the deacon. Is that what it says? What's he known as? Evangelist. Oh, man, he's the evangelist. I mean, he is. How could he not be? How could he not be known as this? Of course he was known as this. He's the evangelist. He's the proclaimer of Jesus. And there's no surprise. And interestingly enough, it's the seed of what this man had become. The seed that was in him 
that was forming, that was present, they said, we want these kinds of men to make sure widows have bread to eat. We want gospel-centered, spirit-filled, gospel-mission-minded men serving food, setting up chairs, taking down chairs, teaching kids in Sunday school, greeting people at the door, leading small groups, making a meal to go take to a woman who just had a baby. This is what kind of leadership is needed. The gospel mission, the gospel direction, the gospel influence, and the flavor that we are hoping that we are, can develop in this church, it gets protected, and it gets nurtured, and it gets promoted, and it gets advanced to every corner of this church, not by the elders alone but by a deacon layer of leadership where they are gospel mission-minded men and they scoot it into every corner, into every nook and cranny to bread on the table, to chairs getting stacked up, to kids in Sunday school class, to a handshake at the door, to you name it. The gospel needs to be at the center of everything of this church. And this is the beauty of what was going on in Acts 6. Peter had the wisdom, by God obviously, to make sure that what they were about was the gospel. They would not get derailed from the gospel. And the solution to the complaint in the church was the gospel through gospel mission-minded men. There's no wasted motion anywhere. No wasted gospel motion anywhere in this early church. It was all about the gospel everywhere. Scott? Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Sorry. Please. Ah, no, that's what we want. Uh, in, uh, uh, excuse me for a second. We, in, in 840, he's, he's going through these, these various towns and preaching the gospel. Do you envision that as him entering a public square and then just proclaiming very, very publicly? Or do you imagine that? Well, go ahead. <coughs> well, what do you think? I, I envision it being that way. Given, given the example we have of Peter, just standing up among many and, and addressing many, and perhaps culturally, oration was really, really prevalent. Yeah, I, 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 I would think the pattern that he would see would, would be that, and he would know no other. Um, and I'm sure he, any opportunity he had personal conversation, what he just had yeah. with an Ethiopian eunuch, he would take that as well. But yeah, he was, he was uh, a gifted and convinced man. Yeah. Oratory was the television of the day. It was. <laughs> no, seriously, it was. Did you just say that? You, you would have a dinner, and then you, you had a hired speaker to speak yeah. after dinner. Yeah. So it was very common. And and the, the, the town square, you'd come in, and at the end of the day, the, the wise older men sitting around, people gathered. That was the place, if you wanted to say anything, you had people, and they would, they would listen. You know, um, let's take a break there. We'll pick up. Sorry. All right. Let's uh, let's finish up. Number four. We we've talked about this, and it, everything we've said leads into this one here. The gospel mission of the church is more effective with deacon leadership. And I think that's one of the main burdens of what the passage is trying to develop. 
is the effectiveness that the church was able to maintain in the gospel because of appointing this layer of servant leadership. Now, again, think, just think on this. Verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, this was a carryover of practice from uh, by God from uh, the Old Testament into what is now being unfolded in the, in the church, and that is that widows and uh, the needy are to be cared for by the church. And Paul has more teaching on that, right, in, in 1 Timothy. Um, but imagine this. These are people that, are, that the church is supposed to be cared for. These are women that the church is supposed to be cared for, and some of them are being cared for, and others are not. And when they started to look at who it was that wasn't being fed, it was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. These are all Greek-speaking widows that aren't being fed. And all the ones who are being fed are, well, what's going on? What is this? I mean, this is scandalous. Potentially scandalous. I mean, can you imagine something like this? I mean, the parallel today would be some in the church would be getting the Lord's table and some wouldn't. And it would be obvious because of ethnicity or color. I mean, that would be scandalous. So what was it that was going on that was fueling this? We don't know. Nothing is said. We don't need to try to figure it out. But I mean, this is this is a very... I mean, this, is, this could derail everything. Mm. And this would be a very challenging ministry area. Which one of you guys would like to step in the middle of that? What's God's desire in a situation like that? How does he want to address the problem? Well, through Peter, he has a certain kind of man in, in mind, God does. A certain kind, not just any kind of man can step into the middle of this, a certain kind of man. He needs to be a man who's of good repute, he's full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Actually, no, no doubt, you need some wisdom to deal with this issue. The apostles would appoint that kind of man. So in challenged ministry areas like this one, God's desire is to bring a certain kind of man to the ministry and to bring his gospel mission influence into that ministry. That ministry, more than anything, at that moment, needs the gospel. It needs a man who's oozing with the gospel, a man who's a witness, a man who relies on the fullness of the Spirit to be that witness. Hey, Scott. Yeah. Sorry, real quick. And sure. Side note that one thing that I think was really stuck out to me from that is it's really cool that they don't leave the church. Hmm. They stayed. <laughs> because, I mean, that you know, that's the... To me, it, that would be the thing today. I mean, if that happened in our church, probably 80% or 90% of the church would just leave. They wouldn't go to the elders and say, well... Yeah. You know, hey, we got this problem. What are we going to do to fix it? Just, I don't know if that's just because they didn't have another option. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but it was also culturally. I mean, you just didn't do that. I mean, you didn't hop from one. You know, prior to the church, you didn't hop from one synagogue to the next. You like we do. You know, it, it wasn't consumer driven. It was community, family, and faith driven. I mean, this is you owned 
what you were a part of, and, and yeah, so you, you stayed around to, to see it be solved. And um, yeah, that's a good point to bring out. So, what is God's desire here? I mean, this was a, this church is seeing a growth that probably, I don't know if any one local community anywhere experienced ever since. There's been great revivals that have taken place, and there's been things that have happened that nobody can document in China, but we know, wow, some amazing things happened. But we're talking about one location, one city, one gathering of people, and there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands coming. So this is a pretty amazing, uh, if we might reduce it to such an illustration, this is a pretty amazing piece of machinery that's going on. (laughs) This is amazing. And somebody threw a wrench in it. And God's desire here is um, to have that ministry be influenced by a certain kind of man so that the gospel mission is maintained. Look, if the, the, when you have, a, when you have a, um, oh, and I don't know the right terminology for the military, but if you have a whole army, you've got some that go out and they fight. And they're on the battle lines, they're, and they're out there. And you have some who are behind, and they have to, they don't fight like those guys fight. <clears throat> but if you have factions within that say, well, you know, we're just about cooking food, and that's all we're about, and we don't care what you guys do out there. Um, no, they all have to be given to the one objective, to win. To win. And so all of them have to have this like-mindedness. And so as Peter and the apostles are leading the gospel outward beyond the boundaries of the church, back in the church, there needs to be leadership over that ministry that isn't thinking something different than what the apostles are thinking. They are the same kind of man. Gospel-concerned, spirit-filled, mission-minded believers. You need to bring that ministry along in that gospel so that the church can continue to function as well as it has been with the gospel. And you see that. I mean, what what is the, the what are the bookmarks, or not the bookmarks, the, the bookends, that's the word. What, 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 what are the bookends on this? Chapter 6, verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. Chapter 6, verse 7, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's not an accident. Luke is trying to develop this. It was growing. Whoa, watch out what happened here. And what's the result? It kept growing. Now, what is it that happened that made that church so effective so that growth could continue? Apostolic leadership assigned another layer of servant leadership to come alongside. So that the church could be functioning as it should with the gospel. This is why no matter what ministry guys you ever get involved with in the church, you should own that ministry and you should do that ministry like there is nothing else going on on the planet when you're doing it. And yet, what? The the church is bigger than this one ministry that I'm doing. This church needs to advance as a whole the gospel everywhere. So the best way we can do that is make sure every single ministry in the church is committed to the gospel, is preaching the gospel to one another in it. It doesn't matter what they're doing, doesn't matter how they're serving, but the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is everywhere. Then the church just oozes the gospel as it goes out. 
And deacons were a catalyst to help that kind of effectiveness continue in verse 7. Um, verses 1 and 7. Okay? Number 5. Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. What do I mean by humble service? Look, let's just be honest. Verse 1, it's the daily distribution of food. Uh, Verse 2, it's being a waiter, serving tables. That's what they did. That's just humble. You're not the one reclining at the table. You're the one serving the table. We're going to see Jesus do that tomorrow in church. It's just humble service. And it was a specific service. It's the one the elders decided that they should not do. They looked at it and they said, that specific need in the church, we shouldn't do that as elders, as apostles. We need to have you guys do that specific ministry. They didn't appoint deacons, and they were just kind of deacons at large. Whatever comes up, doesn't matter what the, the arena is. You're a deacon, you go after it. No, they, 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 Peter was thinking very specifically, this arena, we're going to put leadership to that specific arena. What do you think might have happened? Let's speculate. What might have happened once they solved the problem? What do you think might happen? Let's just guess. We don't know. But let's say the problem gets solved. This isn't happening anymore. All the widows get the food they're supposed to get. Another issue arises. What? Another issue arises. Maybe another issue might arise someplace else. What else? Who? Maybe they want, since this work, they want to assign duty for other things or expand the, you know, that's, that would be his natural to supply something that works. That, that might be very well the case. What else do you think? What would stop happen? Huh? They stopped serving. Maybe they stopped serving. The, the, need was, the need was met. Were they still men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and of men of good reputation? Yeah, because, because their character wasn't dependent on what they did. They did what they did because of the character of men they were. So maybe they just stopped serving. Who knows? Why were they appointed? Because it was a need. It's need-driven. Apostles' leadership identifying the need, saying that need. And so deacons serve, in our opinion, differently than the way elders serve. Elders serve for a lifetime. You are, unless you disqualify yourself or step down or whatever, okay? Um, You serve. And you look at elders and the, the way that they are discussed in the church as they continue that way. However, this passage, I think, gives us maybe some insight into deacons might not serve that way. Now, you may not have, your experience might be something different in a church where once a deacon, always a deacon. And, and maybe that's what God wants. There's, I think there's some, a degree of freedom here in that. But there, it does appear that there's a group, uh, there was a specific need, and men were assigned to it by the leadership of the church, and they went and did it. For instance, I'm going to let you into a little idea that the elders are thinking about. Probably within the next 12 months, we're going to be needing to look for, well, not probably, we're, we're looking in the next 12 months for our own place. 
space to be. That is not something that the elders think that the elders should do. Because um, that would take a time and a, and a, and a degree of uh, expertise that we don't have. Well, one of us probably have, two of us have it, but not all of us. And so we don't want to divide it up for the elders to do that. So we were thinking, why don't we appoint a man to that specific need who's going to, that's going to be his ministry to do? Well, Lord willing, let's say 12 months, 14 months, two years, however long it takes, we we get it. Do we continue the deacon of looking for church property because that's what well, you just appointed him to? I just keeps doing it. I, not necessarily. And, and so the way that we've kind of taken um, our view of deacon leadership is that they serve the will of the elders to do the specific ministry that is needed at the time. Um, it would have been wise for us at the time when we were moving from Tempe High School over to here. It took a lot of elder time that probably should be taken. And it would have been better, just let's just give it to some men, let them organize moving all the stuff, And but we weren't that smart to think of that. But um, anyway, when a ministry comes to an end, if it, it's the type of ministry that it could come to an end, then we would probably take that guy and say, thank you so much for serving. You are a, you're a godly man in that. Thank you for your service. Your, your term is up. Remains deacon qualified. And if another need comes up, we, we know this guy, he's not serving in, a, in a, that specific area anymore. Let's take him, put him over there. We could easily do that. That's the way we've preferred to do it at this point, or at least we're planning to try to do it. Is that right, Tom? <coughs> Question? Yeah. So is that more of an informal deacon process? I guess I consider what Josh did a more formalized way. Yeah. And we would do the same process with, like we did with Josh, we'd do with all of them. In fact, we're asking okay. all them. We have a, a, you know, a whole application process to go through. <coughs> if you guys are, you know what I'll do? Next time we're together, we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy 3 next time and what the actual qualifications for deacon are. I'll bring on the application and let you guys look at it. I'll have some copies. You can take a look at what it involves and go through all of that. Jeff? Well, I, I'm asking this question and know the answer that I, well, I'm almost sure that you'll give. Don't you think a person who is, I'm just going to call them a deacon, of deacon quality, you can't really remove them from something and put them somewhere and wait to put them on something else because they will just naturally sure. go do it. Absolutely. Yeah, these guys weren't sitting around in the back of the pews in, in the temple or wherever they were doing nothing. They were serving, and the way that they found them was that, well, dude, there's this guy. He stands out. He served, he's full of faith. He's full of the spirit. He's a man of good reputation. I've seen him serve. Yeah, they, they moved him from wherever they would have been serving to that. You're absolutely right. They would. But the point is, is there was something very specific that the apostles had in mind, uh, a ministry they had in mind, and it needed a certain kind of leadership, and, and they pulled these godly men from wherever they were and whatever they were doing. Maybe they were already in it serving, and they were trying to help figure out what it was that was going on, and they just more formally appointed them, laid hands on them to do it. And we would do the same. Now, there are some ministries within our church that have an enduring um, need, like children's ministry, worship, things like that. Those are things that we don't think the elders should necessarily do. So we want to appoint deacon leadership over them that will they'll be deacons as long as we have a need for that ministry. Um, so at least that's what our thinking is and, and how we're trying to go about it. 
And there's a lot in the body that just requires humble service. Uh, it's not flashy. It's not a, an attention grabber. But I'll tell you what, probably two, I mean, one man, in a matter of days after being appointed to it, gave his life, and the church exploded. His death, the deacon's death, a great story to tell. The deacon's death led to <coughs> the explosion of the church outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Wow, that's a significant light. And Philip became known as the evangelist. The Apostle Paul wants to stay at his house on his way to Jerusalem. Humble service, but intensely quality men. Um, Deacons need to serve in the areas where most people are dying to get out of. To move on to bigger and better things. Um, So, Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. Last one, number six. Deacons are often near complaints and controversy as the church fulfills its gospel mission. We touched on this. Chapter 6, verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. A complaint arose. Well, I tell you what, all it takes for anybody, whether it be serving as an elder or serving as a deacon or whatever, all it takes is just about 24 hours serving in it when the stars in your eyes get knocked out of what whatever it is you think about what ministry is, whatever glamour you think there might be in it, just serve there long enough and you'll find out it's this is not pretty a lot of times and there's complaints, there's controversy in the midst of it. Um, so I want to ask you this morning, because first, I mean, the elders want to encourage all of you towards deacon qualification. We want to set the deacon qualifications in front of you and say, will you be prayerful about them? Take these character qualities before God, and you're going to get them in 1 Timothy 3 next time. And will you just start talking to God about it every day? God, make me into a man who's dignified. Just set those qualifications in front of you. I don't know what God's going to do with you. He might make you into a deacon. He might not. But it ain't going to hurt you to be asking God to make you dignified. Um, we all need to be those qualifications. Um, so we want to have you set those in, set those in front of you. But um, what do you think, though, about serving people who have complaints? Legitimate complaints. Illegitimate complaints. What do you think about stepping in the midst of, of controversy, even like racial or ethnic controversy, stepping into it with the gospel as a servant? What do you think about that? <coughs> Because that's a legitimate part of it, uh, a very real part of it. What do you think you'll have to keep your eyes on in the midst of controversy? Jesus. His gospel. That's why they were looking for the kind of man they were looking for. Because it takes a certain kind of man who's not going to get distracted by everything. Look, there's only one answer you have for everything that goes on. Yeah, let me, let me take care of the pressing practical need, food. Let's make sure you have food. Now, let's just 
let's remember and let's preach the gospel to ourselves again. Let's remember this. What is it that the cross has done for us? What is it that the cross has made you into by God's grace? And let's live according to that. It takes in controversy, you need gospel-minded people to lead and step into it. Um, so, here's some convictions. We probably could have come up with 60 more, but two things. Let's just back up and let's establish something from, from this passage. Number one, there appears in the early church to be a layer of leadership at the top called the apostles, okay? They appear to be functioning in a shepherd-like way over this whole gathering of people. They're functioning in a sense like elders eventually will when all goes out. I, I don't have any trouble in my mind saying I think there's a, you could put an equal sign almost between what they're doing here and what Paul's going to appoint once he goes out and starts planting churches. I don't think he would have been thinking they need to basically be doing what the apostles were doing in Jerusalem. That's what they need to be doing. Let's call it the elders of the church. Um, there's this elder layer of leadership, shepherding layer of leadership, that is to direct and participate in and oversee the gospel mission of the church. That means locally they are to oversee it. They should oversee it globally to the ends of the earth. And they need to be marked by prayer in that as well as they participate, right? We see that in Acts chapter 6. What else happened in Acts chapter 6? Well, it appears that it was very necessary to form another servant layer of leadership in the church that's not any less gospel concerned than the elders. And they're not more concerned about the gospel than Joe Blow sitting in the pew. Because we are all concerned about the gospel because that's what the Holy Spirit makes us into. Witnesses. Gospel-centered, concerned people. But elders need to lead it and there needs to be a deacon layer of leadership that is as gospel-minded, gospel-mission-minded as the elders. And they need to step in to the ministry needs by the appointment of the elders in the church so that, what? No more complaining. Just go take care of that. I don't want any more complaining. No. So that the church as a whole continues its gospel mission. Right? That's the, the impetus behind why a church should have deacons. Now, I'll tell you this. This is, this is challenging. If, if you, you look at where churches are at with, with deacon leadership, and I'll tell you what, you will find it everything under the sun, every color under the sun, every flavor under the sun of what a deacon does. I, if there's one thing that I think churches probably struggle with the most and maybe have the most difficult time understanding is what is deacon leadership? I mean, I've struggled. I still struggle with this. I think this is, I think God's word is clear and it's brought a lot of help, but my goodness, this is challenging. Deacons are not elders. Elders are not deacons. How do these two groups function together. Who's who's really calling the shots in the church? Is, is it the deacon board? Is it the elders? I mean, you, depending on what your background is, you've seen probably five or six different things of what <laughs> deacons do. I don't, you know, so I like that. Far out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, there needs to be some really clear thought about what this is. And what I love about what Acts 6 reveals is that the gospel is at the center of it. This is a gospel-driven, gospel-concerned way of looking at the church and its leadership, and it makes sense. Um, and what we hope to do next time, as I said, is we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to look at the qualifications for deacon. And I'll give you stuff. I'll put something in your hand that you can take with you every day, and you can pray about the, the deacon qualifications in your own life and um, begin to, to just make that a whole matter, uh, more a matter of prayer in your life before God. Um, you don't just wake up one day and find yourself a deacon qualified person. I think the list has been given so that you might look and say, you know what, I would love to aspire to a servant layer of leadership in the church that helps the church function well for the gospel. I, I want to be that kind of man. I hope God would put a hunger in you and a thirst in you for that so that you wouldn't be a pew sitter, so you wouldn't do anything like that. That, that. that would just drive you crazy to be in church but not be committed to movement in that direction. Um, the only way you become a guy like that is that you would begin to drag your carcass before God and ask for him to make you that. And that's what we want um, in this church. That's what this church needs. That's what's at stake. Imagine if Peter was distracted and not able to continue to do what he was doing. Derek, do you have a question? Uh, I do. Yeah. Um, in regards to that, just like the individual or the man that that would look like, mm-hmm. um, Like, Pam and I were talking the other night about, like, just um, godly men that strive uh, for for purity and holiness of life, but yet still sin in areas that many times we look at as, like, you've been a believer for a while now, we shouldn't be struggling with that same thing, or we should be past that. Uh, How does that balance take place when you're trying to pursue, like, deacon? Well, there's a there's a process. I, I think every case needs to be taken as it comes, mm-hmm. um, and each sin needs to be taken a look at as it comes um, in each man. Because there are, you know, yeah, I should have, you know, I don't know why I keep committing adultery, but you know, it just it just keeps happening, and well, that's one issue. <laughs> Um, and there's another issue of, you know, I, I, I just, I, I am prone to anxiety all the time. I'm not trusting God in situations. And I, I'm fighting this the best that I know how, and I just seem to be plagued by it, and I, I need help. And I, and I feel like every week I'm confessing it and repenting of it, and then I'm confessing it again and repenting of it again. And, you know, that's, a, that's, that's something that looks a little different than, so, so, I mean, every situation is different. Mm-hmm. And deacon qualification is not primarily sinlessness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what makes a man deacon qualified or elder qualified is repentance in areas. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the very thing you're asking is, you know, shouldn't I have repented of that a long time ago? You know, well, I did, and, and I am. Or am I? You know, and you just wrestle through it with godly men, and, and depending on the area of life it is, and what it looks like, and how it manifests itself, and and whatnot. You know, you, you rely on your brothers around you to determine if maybe genuine repentance is or is not taking place. 
You know, I mean, you're never going to get to a point where you're going to be uh, not wrestling with repentance over sin. Um, so, you know, that's just where we're at in this way God has left us. It makes us very needy. How we respond to that is everything. If it is, if it is, uh, you know what, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really that worried about it because, you know what, you know, we're left in this fallen condition and, and so yeah, I sin in that. So I can, you know, it happens. That'd be very concerning to me. A man, though, who's broken and who is humbled before God and, and says, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. Look, I'm just looking at my life. I, I, I just appear at times to be dominated by this sin, and I, I hate it. And I want to strive by God's grace to not be. So that's, that's very encouraging for me to hear because I identify with that. And we, we just need each other, and, we, and each situation needs to be specifically looked at. And that's why we try to be really careful about the, the deacon application process that hopefully is a tool that allows us to evaluate a man and help a man, most importantly, evaluate himself. And then we get to enter into that evaluation with him and look at it and uh, see how that goes. Omar? Yeah. Um, and I was, I was thinking, reminding me of, uh, you know, the applications, and it seems like they could be fake, or they could be, you know, looked at from an external way, and you could say, oh, yeah, he's, he's qualified, but on the heart, it's going to be harder to to, to test, you know? How, how do you go about it in your process, or what do you think about it? That's really good. A lot of that can only come, obviously, Let's let's state the obvious, but not um, as if we should all know it and never think about it again. We can't know each other's hearts. We'll never know perfectly one another's hearts. <clears throat> Only God sees that. And at the end of the day, you entrust me to God as an elder, and God knows my heart, and God is working my heart, and I entrust you to God. Now that said, it doesn't mean we never step into each other's lives, and we do. We step into each other's lives, and we try to ask one another about our hearts, but the heart is deceitful, desperately sick, beyond everything else. And so we have a, we have a, a glimpse on what our heart is, and we're still deceived to a degree of what we see in our own hearts. That's why we need each other, and we get involved with one another in our lives. And, and that is why it is so important to have a relationship with the men it's actually to know them and, and, and be able to have observed their life so that you've had at least more um, uh, more uh, space by which and angles from which to look at his life. I mean, you've, you've maybe had years walking through. You watched when he was single. You watched now him get married. You watched him deal with sin in his marriage. You watched him now he's, a, he's, having, a, he's having babies with his wife and now you're watching a new life. He he got a job. He lost his job. He, he. How did he go through that? You know, you you watch, and what is in the heart will come out, in time, at God's time, and so you watch and you just walk together. And uh, it would be very troubling to me. In fact, he, here's one. Let me let me back and give you an example at the elder level. One of the things that we wrestled with a year ago, with Smedley coming, is we didn't know him. We believe the testimony from his elders and his church was that this guy's elder qualified. Okay, and from what we saw, we thought we don't have any reason to not think that. But it was challenging because we we all looked at each other and we say, you know, I know Tom. Tom knows me, and you know Mark, and we know Scott. 
but we don't know Smedley like we know each other. So how do we do this? And so we let the process go plenty long in, in our minds. We could have let it go on even longer, I'm, I'm sure. But we, we, we let it be a longer process because we try to dialogue with him as much as possible over phone and by going out there and having him come so that we felt that we at least had as much assurance as we could have that we, we felt like we could see his heart to the degree that we could. At the end of the day, we entrust him to God and he entrusts us to God. I, th- I would like to answer, Jerry, <coughs> maybe a, a little differently. Um, first, I would say, when you look at the life of Joseph, there are some sins a person must flee right away. There are some sins uh, that may take a little bit longer. Uh, Anger, uh, maybe a harshness in tone, where that is something where you can see somebody struggling with that sin for a period of time. But if you're talking sexual immorality, it's something that needs to be cut off immediately. I, I say that as kind of putting a poster up, and then I would say this. If you're a man and you see in your pride you have a tendency and a desire and a preference to try to control your life that you aren't found out or you, it it basically becomes a thought, uh, wow, I am losing control. Mm. Or it's, I'm going to regain control. And I... As you guys were talking, I opened my Bible to uh, James 5.16. It says, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I really believe how I understand this verse, and I realize different people take different views on it. If there is a continual sin that may be attacking at you that you it's something you can confess to another you know I don't think this is talking about oh I got angry a month ago I think this is something if this is a characteristic I'll, I'll give you an example and Scott kind of alluded to it earlier if you are a Christian that sometimes maybe is depressed you're not characterized being a depressed person. You, you are a Christian. You're you're the man of God. And sometimes I have a tendency to be depressed. But ultimately, we're we're Christ's children. And and so a lot of in the self self evaluation is: Am I wanting to hide who I am and what I am from my spouse, from the elders I serve with? from the guy sitting next to me or do I absolutely praise God that I have people around me I can be honest with and, and I'll tell you what your, your motive of how you want to deal with your sin, sin speaks volumes to are you the man that God's looking for as a deacon leadership just as a man of God absolutely part of qualifications but that's really helpful. We've talked an awful lot <clears throat> about the gospel mission. And I want to finish with a quote from John Piper. So if you'll get your little quote out. 
because we need to put this all <coughs> into perspective. Okay? The elders are reading through um, <coughs> Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, on the Supremacy of God and Missions. And this is what he says on his first page of chapter one. Famous words. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. <gasps> what? After everything we just said? And saw in God's word, it's not. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Mm. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Peter was fulfilling the mission. And um, they were men <coughs> who worshipped God and were driven by the one that they loved, and we need to be that as well. And this takes us back to the heart. As great as the gospel mission is, um, you know, as much as we must know it and study it and analyze it and get it and be obedient to it, we must first be men that when we come to the word of God, we come to bring our hearts into contact with the one who is there and we worship him. We love him. We want to be changed by him. It's that kind of man that makes a radical impact on the mission of the gospel versus one who just does it because he knows he should do it. So we need to be worshipers motivated on the mission. Okay, Let's pray. Let's give thanks to God for his word. I thank you guys so much for just sitting like you do and enduring on a cold metal chair. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word again. Thank you for even just Tom's words at the end there, Lord, how helpful they are for us. Um, pray that you would take our time together in your word today mm-hmm. and that you would use it um, in ways far beyond anything we would have ever imagined or thought or considered to pray for. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up in um, Grace Bible Church an army of deacons who are gospel mission minded who are full of the spirit and who are qualified by the list that you inscripturated in 1 Timothy 3 I pray Lord that these men would and many others would set those qualifications in, in front of their heart and their lives their family their church, and they would plead with you to make them into such men, and that they would be patient, because it takes um, it, it takes living, just living life, and it takes failing, it takes growing, it takes rejoicing, it takes every experience under the sun mm. to become a qualified man. Um, Father, I pray that um, you would do this in the way that brings glory to yourself and not to us. And we pray that this would happen 
um, so that the mission of the gospel, which is a temporary necessity in this world, we pray that it would happen. This is what you have called us to do. And we want to be witnesses and testifiers of Jesus. So help us to do that. Help every ministry in Grace Bible Church to function in a gospel way so that the whole organism can move in concert with all of its members for the gospel. And um, draw many to your son. May we participate with you as you do that. We want to build them up and we want to send them out to the ends of the earth. And Father, help the fuel of it all to be worship of you. The world has huge spaces where no worship of you is taking place at all. And may we be motivated in the gospel mission because we want to see worship take place in those areas. So God, we entrust our lives to you. We give thanks to you for your work of grace in our lives by the cross of Jesus. Pray that you'd make us into witnesses for your sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, um, we're going to dismiss early today. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll be here. If you guys want to, any of you want to hang around and talk a little bit, we can do that. Um, the, uh, you have a, uh, an assignment that you're going to hand, uh, that you're going to work on for the next time. It's going to be January 24th. It's primarily Sunday service-driven assignment. In other words, I want to know more about what you're doing personally on Sundays in the church, if anything. And if you're not doing something on Sundays, I don't want you to, don't, don't worry about that. This is not condemn you. I just want to kind of get a feel for where you're at and what you're doing. I'm also very interested in what you see in your ministry that you are serving in on Sundays. What do you see happening there? There's questions that will lead you through many different things. And, and maybe if you're not serving on a Sunday, maybe you consider start serving on a Sunday. A lot of what we do at Grace Bible Church is about Sunday mornings so, or Sunday afternoons. Um, if you have your assignment from last time for today that says assignment for January 10th, that's uh, the yellow sheet. If you have that and want to turn that in, make sure your name's on it, guys, because um, I cannot decipher your handwriting. I can, but not all of it. Um, make sure your name's on it, and you can just leave it on like a table here, and I'll take those. And you know, I'll take them anytime you guys have them. If you want to bring in late ones, you can do that as well. Okay? And think that is it. So guys, thank you so much for coming. See you next time, January 20th.